I want you to consider for a moment the words of the song that we just sang. As many of these hymns are, are there songs that grew up with, sang most all my life. But this song is entitled, Blessed Assurance. First verse is, Blessed Assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine, heir of salvation, purchase of God, born of His Spirit, washed in His blood. Skipping to the third verse. Perfect submission, all is at rest. I and my Savior am happy and blessed. Watching and waiting, looking above, filled with His goodness, lost in His love. This is my story. This is my song. Praising my Savior all the day long. This is my story. This is my song. Praising my Savior all the day long. This song of great hope, of great joy, of great confidence is many times anything but the song of our lives. This song speaks of a faith of yesteryear or a sense of confidence in one's salvation that I've rarely encountered in other believers and oftentimes don't encounter in my own life. The sense that I'm lost in His wonder, lost in His love, and this is my story, praising my Savior all the day long. Instead, many times our story is this. Someone asks us, do we believe we're going to heaven? We say, well, I hope I am. I hope so. Where there's anything but a sense of confidence, a sense of assuredness, let alone one that's blessed. <laughs> there's anything but a sense of assurance. Now, sometimes that comes from humility. We don't want to sound overconfident as if we deserve to go there when someone asks us if we're going to heaven and we say, well, I hope so. But many times, though, that is simply the expression of one that really is not that sure, but yet continues to go through the Christian life simply hoping it will all turn out right in the end, and their hope ends up not being in Jesus Christ, but upon something else that will turn out at the end. I want you to consider how that's like with an everyday illustration. Imagine you were getting on a flight uh, to travel to New York, and you were leaving SFO, and you've just boarded your flight. You found your seat number, and you put your overheads in the bin above, and you put something underneath the seat, and you sat down and you followed the flight attendant's instructions to uh, turn off your electronics and you've made sure your seat belt is buckled. And then as you're sitting there on the tar tarmac, uh, the pilot comes on and says, welcome to flight 1527 to New York. Uh, we apologize for the delay. Uh, we know you've been delayed 20 minutes here on the tarmac. We wanted to let you know that our mechanics are having a difficult time with engine number one. They believe they have it. They believe they found the source of the oil leak. Um, but they're not sure. Uh, we're going to go ahead and fly anyway. We believe that we can make it, even if we lose one engine, we believe we can make it on the other engine to New York. And we're going to be taking off in a few moments. How many of us would stay on that flight? How many of us would request to immediately disembark 
and would be headed for the doors. And if they locked them, we would be the ones trying to get out the door. We would, even if we didn't do that, what do you think five hours on that flight would be like for you? Having been told there may be a 50-50 chance of making it. If you even stayed on that flight, it would not be enjoyable. And the words all the time would be, I hope we make it. Imagine taking a cruise ship out of San Francisco up to Alaska. You've checked into your stateroom. You've gone through all the pre-boarding procedures and you're looking forward to a nice cruise and you're all settled in and everyone's on board, but then the captain of the ship comes on and says, we just want to let you know that over the weekend we discovered a water leak and we've been unable to patch it up to 100% sense of security. We're taking on water, but we think the shortage of this voyage here, we think we're still going to make it into Alaska and we'll be fine. Please enjoy the cruise. You'll either be getting off the cruise or demanding to or jumping off, uh, or even if you elect to stay on believing him, you'll be wondering the entire flight, will you, or entire cruise, I'm sorry, wondering whether or not you're going to make it. And it will not be enjoyable. You will not be spending time in the pool. You will not be spending time enjoying the things you otherwise would enjoy. You'll be just trying to think, will I make it, and how can I get off if we start sinking? But that is many times exactly how some choose to live the Christian life. And they're content with that. I hope I make it to heaven. I hope I stand before God on the judgment day and I'm accepted. But there's fear, there's doubt, there's lack of security, lack of confidence. And there's a temptation to trust in someone else that is ultimately yourself and your ability to get through the judgment simply on living a good enough life. And there is no blessed assurance. We're going to talk this morning about trusting in Jesus when you're tempted to trust in yourself. To simply get through this ordeal of the human life and just skate through on the judgment day based on being good enough. We're going to talk about how we need to escape that notion and go back to what faithful Christians of another generation understood when these hymns were written. That there is a blessed assurance that we can have. And understand what it means to have that assurance based on Christ. But let's first talk about the problem of this fear to understand more where it's coming from. First of all, sin creates an emotional challenge to our confidence. The problem is not that believers want to be afraid. It's not that believers uh, somehow choose to have a lack of assurance. There's something that happens sometimes 15 minutes after baptism. And that is sin that plagues us in our entire life that causes that lack of confidence. Sin creates not a real challenge in the life of the trusting believer, but an emotional challenge to our confidence. When sin comes into our life, and as James indicates, we choose it. Not that we're forced to sin. We're not forced to do things that we wouldn't otherwise do. We're not forced to leave out things that we should be doing. We choose to sin. Scripture's very clear on that. But for the most part, we're trying not to sin. James says we're led away by our own desires when we sin, and we're aware of those desires. We know what our areas of weakness are, just as Satan knows, and he touches them all the time. 
that when we do sin, and, and John says we do sin, in fact, if we claim we don't sin, uh, John says we make God out to be a liar. So we wrestle with this reality of sin that we know we ought not to be committing. And even if we have hammered down not doing sinful things, we look on the other side, we see a lot of things we're leaving out, and that will simply create anxiety, spiritual anxiety, and we wonder, am I really saved? Or if this just keeps on going in my life, will I really make it? Just like if the cruise ship keeps taking on water, but yet you keep going forward, will we make it into the port or not? And we spend our entire lives wondering and oftentimes worrying. Because anxiety will lead to insecurity. Where there's anything but a blessed assurance. There's no assurance. And Jesus will not be your story. He will not be your song. And you will not be praising Him all the day long if you have no assurance. You will not be singing the praises of Royal Caribbean if you don't even think that ship is going to make it. You'll be just trying to hang on. And with many believers, and in my own life at times, that's all we're doing. Just trying to hang on and hope it just turns out already. And then that will lead to depression. Because with addictive sins, sins where we keep going back to the same thing over and over again, or with people that are already predisposed to being insecure about their lives, you add spiritual insecurity into that. They already feel like they don't measure up to what their parents ever wanted for them. And now they don't measure up to what God wants for them. And they live with that. That is a miserable existence. Some leave the faith simply because of the misery and the insecurity and the anxiety involved with trying to live the Christian life. Because they think it's based on how well they're doing that God will accept them. And that's spiritual depression. And ultimately leads many times to abandonment of the faith or some type of nominal existence just to see if it turns out all right. If not, well, I'm doomed. This struggle is very real. And in Romans chapter 7, and Michael went to this text last week, we're going to revisit it again where the Apostle Paul, in this great book of Romans where he talks about how we are saved and made right with God through Jesus, We'll, in chapter 7 here, talk about this struggle, which is very real. And as Michael pointed out last week, this is the struggle of the Apostle Paul. Wrote 13 letters of the 27 in the New Testament. Appointed an apostle directly by Jesus Christ. Acts chapter 9, Jesus appeared to him on the road to Damascus, told him to go into the city to hear what he needed to do to be saved. and uh, Lived his life with a knowledge of God's will and mission for his life, no one you could say could be closer as represented in Scripture than the Apostle Paul. But yet, as Michael brought out last week, he struggled with his own awareness of sin in his life. Notice how the struggle is described. Verse 14, beginning. He says, We know that the law is spiritual. Let me just pause here. The law is simply God's rules for your life, whether it was the Old Testament rules for the Jewish people or God's rules now for us. We know that the law is spiritual. That means good. But he says, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. Verse 15, I do not understand what I do. 
For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate to do. Just pause here again. He says, what I want to do, what I know is right, oftentimes I don't do that. Whether it be on a Friday night or when I'm by myself or when I'm with friends, I just don't do what I know I'm supposed to do. And he says, instead I do what I hate to do. I do what I know is wrong. I know what's plagued my life. I do it anyway, he's saying. Verse 16, and if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but sin living in me. Verse 18, I know that good itself does not dwell in me. That is my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. Verse 19, for I do not do the good that I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Isn't that the truth of our lives? Verse 20, now if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. Verse 21, so I find this law at work, although I want to do good, Evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law. Let's just read that again. Here's where he's at in his head, verse 22. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law. That means he wants to do the right thing. Verse 23 now. But I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. Verse 24, what a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? Let's just stop here. We'll hit verse 25 in just a moment. Let's consider what he describes here as this war. This war that's waging within him. You can imagine paying $5,000 to go on this cruise to Alaska, but that yet you've been, that you want to enjoy, you want to appreciate, you're even with family or friends, but yet you've been told that the ship is taking on water just like your life is taking on sin every day. You want to enjoy the cruise. You say cruises are good, they're to be enjoyed. It's beautiful, the scenery here. But you see or what you know is that this ship is taking on water. And if that ship starts listing, there's this war there. I want to enjoy the cruise, but I can't because I know the reality of what's going on in my life. That's exactly what Paul is saying about our Christian life. He says, verse 21, although I want to do good, I want to enjoy this life, I want to do the right thing that God wants, evil is right there with me. And so strong is that evil, even though he knows his own sense of responsibility, he says, um, that's not even him anymore, it's evil doing it. That's just how powerful it is. Not that he's excusing himself, it's just there. And the whole debate, are we born sinful or do we choose sin? I believe biblically we choose sin, but it's almost a moot issue. Sin is just there, regardless of when it started. And our reality is what to do about it. 
But you can imagine the insecurity, the emotional challenge that sin brings to believers. It'll haunt you. Are you really forgiven of that sin 15 years ago that you can remember like it happened yesterday? Are you forgiven of what you said to your family member two years ago? That even though you said you're sorry, you can never get those words back. Are you forgiven of careless words? Thoughtless actions? At times, indifference to the Lord and wanting to do something different. And we get torn up about it. And what did Paul say that is in verse 24? What a wretched man that I am. And that's how we feel about ourselves. What an awful person I am to have done this or to keep on doing it or keep on thinking this or keep on acting this way. When I know better, when I know what the right thing is. And his question in verse 24 is exactly ours. Who will rescue me from this body of death? He knows that the answer is not within himself, right? He doesn't say, what shall I do more? to feel better about myself. He says, who will rescue me from this body of death? He understands that the answer is outside of himself. In just a moment, we'll look at that answer, but let's see how he states it in verse 25. We'll explore this further in moments. He says, thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. The answer is outside of him, and it's in Jesus. But I want to consider some applications before we go to see this answer of Jesus, because we have to do some blasting before we can do some building. Blasting at every false notion of how we're going to make it eventually that we might have so that we might fully embrace Jesus as the answer. I want to look at some applications here. First of all, the struggle. Go ahead, Nathaniel, to the next one. This struggle is real. It was real with the Apostle Paul, and Michael made that point so powerful last week. Don't think you're above it. (laughs) Don't think that you're a miserable person either because you have the struggle with sin. Don't think, well, if I was just a better person or if I, I just loved God more, I would not have that struggle. The Apostle Paul was profoundly aware of his forgiveness. And he echoes that sense of grace that he received continually throughout Scripture. But yet here he describes that struggle and he will say, as we could say, O wretched person that I am, who shall deliver me from this body of death? This struggle is real and it will always be there, this struggle with sin. There's no passage that says once you hit 45 and you've been a Christian since 20, you'll no longer be committing sin. Or once you get to age 70, you have it all down and you're not leaving anything out anymore. You're always doing the right thing. You're watching the right TV shows. You're praying long enough. You're you're assembling as often as you should. There's never a passage that says you'll be coasting with sin at some point (laughs) because you've arrived. Yes, we get certain things down and we mature out of certain sins and we take on challenges better as we grow in faith. But there will never be a day that Satan says, I'm I'm not going to knock on your door anymore. Even if you think you got it down, he's going to use spiritual arrogance. 
He's going to use pride. He's going to use doubt. Well, are you praying long enough? I know you're praying every day, but are you praying long enough? Satan will always be tapping on your mind to get you to doubt yourself. The struggle with, am I doing enough? Am I good enough? And this problem will always be there. But the deliverance will be found in Jesus. And never take on one of these false ways of trying to deal with the struggle. That is, thinking that the answer will be within you. And I'll just put on a life vest, which is myself. I'll just stand near the door to get off this ship, shouldn't drown. Don't ever think that somehow the answer is within yourself. It's not in being a spiritual person. A lot of people say, well, I'm a spiritual person. Are you spiritual enough? You're doing everything right? Got everything down? Never a bad thought? Are you that spiritual? Well, I'm a good person. Well, I know a lot of people that are a better person than I am. I see them all the time. So I don't know if I'll ever be good enough if that's a standard because there's a lot of people better than I am. There's too many things I'm embarrassed about, ashamed about, that I've already done, let alone what I will do. And whether or not I'm going to be a good enough person, I need to abandon that ship because that goes nowhere. Uh, well, it's not in being a better person. Well, we all ought to be better. But will I ever be good enough to overcome this taking on of water, <laughs> which is evil and sin? Well, it's not going to be found in satisfactory obedience. Is there ever some point where we're just, okay, this is good enough for God. And then we're going to dare unload that bag of goodness on the judgment day where we just spew it all over the judgment floor. Here, Lord, this is the best I did. Here are my teen years. Here are my 20s. Here are my 60s and my retirement years. You've got to take it because I'm better than my neighbor two doors down. Or I'm better than a lot of churchgoers that I know. Are we, are we going to dare do that on the judgment day? Let loose that bag of satisfactory obedience. It's not in church attendance, though church attendance is very important and good. It recenters us, but there's no place in Scripture that says that will get us through the judgment day. It's what the old song said. The song that we sang first, my hope is built on nothing less. Nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. All other things are sinking sand. There's where we have to go. That's where Paul went. Right after he said, oh, wretched man that I am, who will rescue me? Not how will I do better, but who will rescue me, Romans 7, 24, from this body of death? He goes to the one answer, verse 25. Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ. Let's explore that answer. What I want to see next in our final point is that sin insecurity is met by Jesus' sacrifice. Sin insecurity is met by Jesus' sacrifice. Today there's a lot of talk, especially among younger people, about food insecurity. Uh, a lot of younger people, even college students, struggle with, will I get enough food? Because they're not really eating enough and they don't have enough money to buy food. 
There's some who live with housing insecurity. They don't know if they can stay where they're living. They don't know where they're going to live next or how they can continue to afford it. That's especially true during this COVID struggle. And all those are very real and unsettling insecurities. But the challenge we're taking on today is sin insecurity. What are we going to do about this problem of sin? Let's see now Romans 8 verse 1. Paul laid out the problem in chapter 7. Now verse 1 of chapter 8. He says, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are where? In Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you what? Free. From the law of sin and death. Jesus himself said in the Gospel of John, whom the Son sets free is what? Free indeed. There's the answer. It's Jesus Christ. Verse 3. For what the law was powerful, I'm sorry, powerless to do because it was weakened by the sinful nature, God did by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful humanity to be a sin offering. And so He condemned sin in human flesh. Verse 4, In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us, who do not live according to the sinful nature, but according to... To the Spirit. Okay, let's break down what we're being told in these four powerful verses. First of all, Paul says, in no clear language, therefore, he says, there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Well, what does he mean by no condemnation? What he's saying here is despite the reality of sin that we struggle to resist, we try not to commit, God knows that. In fact, again, we say we have not sinned. John says we make him out to be a liar. So don't try saying, well, I'm, I'm, I'm living above it. He simply says there's no condemnation to those who are in Christ. That is, your sin cannot touch you spiritually if you're in Christ Jesus. Now, what does that mean? His sin, our, our sin cannot touch us. It doesn't mean we're not plagued by it. It doesn't mean we shouldn't be troubled by it. It doesn't mean we should live fast and loose with it. Just because you're in Christ doesn't mean, well, you just let it go now. Or you don't have to worry about sin. Uh, it's all taken care of. That's not what he is saying. What he's saying here is to the person who has put their faith and trust in Jesus who knows their own helpless situation, he's saying here that that sin cannot condemn you in the end. It's not going to catch up with you and haunt you because you, made been, I'm sorry, you have been made free from what he says here later is the law of sin and death. The law's requirements are simply that you keep everything perfectly. If we're going to try to show up on the judgment day based on how good we've lived life, we've got to done everything perfectly and not left out a thing. I don't know who of us that can 
come close to that. The one that our society thinks of is Mother Teresa, but she, she was the first to deny that, despite the goodness of her life. The answer again is Jesus. And it says, He has set us free from the law of sin and death. Sin and death means you've committed sin, you've, you're going to be condemned for that. But he says, Paul says, we've been set free from that. That sin cannot come back to haunt. It, once it's been forgiven, it's forgiven. And we'll see the extent of that in just a moment. But it says, God sent His own Son in the likeness of humanity, verse 3, to be a sin offering. The center point of Christianity is that Christ died for us to make up for these shortcomings, not just when we're baptized and frees us all from the, uh, frees us from the past sin of all of our life. He frees us from the sin in the future by continually working to forgive us. Those who, verse 1, are in Christ and those who live according to the Spirit. That means people who stay with Christ and they allow the residency of Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit to stay in their life. They stay with God. They keep on this challenge of living for Him by trying to work on sin to get rid of it. But they stay with Jesus fundamentally. That's the power of Jesus' sacrifice. Look at 1 John now. We'll end with this text. We looked at it a couple weeks ago. But there is no better text, if you will, to keep going back to whenever you start doubting yourself or looking at how far you've fallen from where you know you ought to be. There's no better text to go to that speaks to the reality of what God is looking for. 1 John chapter 1, verse 5. John writes, This is the message we have heard from Him and declare to you. God is light. In Him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with Him and yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. Verse 7, But if we walk in the light, as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, His Son, purifies us from most sin. No, I, I deliberately read that wrong. Ricardo, what did, I, what did I get wrong with that? All sin. The blood of Jesus, His Son, purifies us from all sin. Verse 8, we claim to be without sin. We deceive ourselves. Truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make Him out to be a liar and His Word is not in us. Let's just stop here for a moment. First of all, we have to abandon the idea that we're going to live in sinless perfection. Just because you're baptized does not mean that you're now sin-free. But what baptism does mean is that you've made the decision to get out of the sinning business. That you've decided that this will not be my lifestyle anymore, just doing whatever I want to do, living for myself, being free to do whatever I want, whatever makes me feel good. You've decided to get out of that business. That's what repentance means. But it doesn't mean you're now sin-free. 
fact, again, John tells us, if you think you're without sin, you're making God to be a liar. He knows what you did Friday night. Uh, he knows what you thought. He knows what you left out last Sunday that you know you shouldn't have done. He knows, so we just need to accept there's another reality that he's dealing with. He talks here about we don't walk in darkness. That means just doing whatever we want to do and just engaging in whatever sin we want to sin in and leaving out whatever we want to live in. That's walking in darkness. We do that, we're out. Because that's going back to the old life before baptism. But he does talk about those who walk in the light. Paul said in Romans 8, that's walking according to the Spirit. That means you're in the business now of serving God. Working on everything you know you need to work on. You're conscious of sin. You have this sense of, I want to do better each day. And you're aware of where you need to grow. You know what your weaknesses are that Satan keeps trying to tap into. You keep working on that. That's walking in the light. You're allowing God's Word to always redirect you. When God says no to something, you work on saying no. When God says, I want you to do this, you work on doing that. In other words, when God says you go to the right, you go to the right. When He says you go to the left, you go to the left. When God says stop that in your life, you work on stopping it. That's what walking in the light is. And then when you fail, what, what's the answer? Verse 9, try to do a lot better the next time? No, he says, verse 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. What God simply asks for is that we acknowledge what he already knows. He knows we did it. He, know we, he knows we thought it. He says, confess that to me. Acknowledge that to me. That's a sense of humility before him. And he says, if you do that, and you don't try to just pretend you didn't do it or avoid it, if you confess it, come to terms with it, he says, he is faithful and just to forgive all of our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. You mean the things that maybe we forgot to confess? Yes. The things that we left out that we should have done that we didn't even know we should have done? When he says, purify us from all unrighteousness, that includes things we've forgotten to confess. You mean that really bad thing I did in my teens? Purifies us from all unrighteousness. It could not be said any clearer. Chapter 2, verse 1, My dear children, I write, to this, I write you this so you will not sin. Let's pause here. He's not saying, hey, just now be a little free with sin. Don't worry about it. He says just the opposite. I'm writing to you so you won't sin. Keep on trying to be faithful. Keep on working on temptation. But he says, but if anybody does sin, we have an advocate, chapter 2, verse 1, with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. We have an advocate, someone that continually goes to the Father on our behalf. That when we confess those sins, we take those sins to the Father, Jesus intercedes for us and tells the Father, and I forgive them of those sins. Continually cleansing us from our sin. Even of the things that we're not sure we left out or we're not sure if it was wrong, He continually cleanses us. And the one who appreciates that grace and trust it doesn't just go out and do what, they, uh, do what they want now because they don't have to try that hard anymore. 
they now love God so much they will even be more faithful. <coughs> Not to trying to achieve some type of sinless state, but instead they'll echo the words of the song, more love to thee, O Christ, more love to thee. Their life will be one of continual growth, continual progress. Two steps forward, one step back. I have a lot of students that way in school. Struggle with them all the time. Teachers will email, do you know about so-and-so? Do you know what they did today? Other the times they'll email me, hey, so-and-so did it pretty well today. He came in and sat down right where he spoke. He did the right thing. And I'll tell those teachers, well, that student, he's kind of a two steps forward, one step back. He has his bad days. He gets called to the office. I get a call as his case manager. But for the most part, he's better than he was last year. I've seen the record. He's maturing. As he gets older, he's kind of wising up in his behavior. He's learning how to be more respectful to teachers, recognizing what the rules are, and sometimes teachers have different rules. But he's, he's getting with the program because he's got out of the business of just being a troublemaker. He doesn't want to be defined that way. But some days he will have the bad days. But I don't abandon him. We don't expel him because he did, did one thing. Hey, here's the consequence, but we're going to put you right back in class. We're going to keep going, and that's what God does with us. He keeps us going forward and forgives us of our failures. I want to end with these brief thoughts as applications. <coughs> Again, we're to be in Christ and live according to the Spirit. Here's what this means. First of all, maintain a sensitivity to sin. Just because we're continually cleansed of our sin doesn't mean we just allow it to dominate or we don't get bothered by it anymore. We're bothered by it more. But we know someone's done something about it. Excuse me. So maintain a sensitivity to sin. Two, maintain a prayer life that includes confession. Be thankful in our prayers, absolutely. Pray for those who are sick and upset, absolutely. But to the degree that you are conscious of your sin, confess those sins to God. Don't try to forget them. <laughs> Scripture doesn't say that. Try to forget your sins. Try to forget what you did. But confess those sins to God and then go forward. Make sure that confession of sin, acknowledging to the Lord, please forgive me of things that I left out. They don't even know I left out. Keep that consciousness of sin and confession of sin in your prayer life. Three, regularly sing songs of faith and assurance. Again, our mind and our heart wants to deceive us. Our emotions about how we feel about sin wants to work towards defeating us. And that's what Satan does. But these powerful songs like Blessed Assurance, other great hymns, I will sing of my Redeemer, those sing, songs capture your heart. And when you sing them, Sing them in those weak moments because they will help your emotions take you out of that dark place and they'll remind you of what God has done when Satan's trying to remind you what you've done. Allow these songs to do their work as they were written years ago or even recently by people who understood grace and faith and obedience. 
Even in this song, Blessed Assurance, the per person who wrote the song says, perfect submission, all is at rest. The person is still submitting themselves to God, but they have this blessed assurance. Next, place Scripture at the forefront of your mind. Keep Romans 8 close. Keep Romans chapter 8, verses 1 through 4, and the whole chapter for that matter, very close. 1 John 1, 5 through 2, 2. Keep them close. Memorize them. Keep them on your desk, on your dash. Let those scriptures tell you the truth when Satan's trying to remind you of what you just did or what you did a long time ago. Keep those passages close. And finally, surround yourself with people of faith. That's the power of our assemblies. Singing these songs together, talking together. Keep people of faith close to you that share these values so that that will help you stay on the right track. Again, sin will always be there knocking on the door of our confidence, trying to shake us, to quit or just live a nominal life. But Jesus is the answer, the only answer to our insecurity that's caused because of our sin. Again, there's no condemnation to those who are aware in Christ. There's the safety. Everywhere else is what? Sinking sand. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. Therein is our hope, and may God call us home in the state of being in His Son where there is safety. Again, as we've said in previous weeks, safe in the arms of Jesus. Let's make sure we don't lose anyone. Make sure when no one abandons Jesus Christ. And make sure that we ourselves do not either. We'll talk about those themes in weeks to come, what happens when someone does abandon. But keep these songs close. They speak of your hope. We're going to sing a song to encourage us in just a moment to be faithful to the Lord, make whatever decision we might need to make, to continue to go forward. Again, life is two steps forward, one step back. But you're going forward. And we'll be found at home one day forever in our eternal home with Jesus Christ because we stayed with Him. We never abandoned Him.